and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. If you are interested in catching me uh, live on video or audio uh, on October the 7th, I'm going to be doing a panel at Tech Policy Press's event, Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. I'm going to be heading to San Francisco to do the From Way Back to Way Forward 25th anniversary celebration in person in the Presidio at the Internet Archive. And then I'm going to be doing a video recorded keynote for the Seagull or CGL conference, November 5th through 6th. So that's all coming up. And you can find more details if you go to pluralistic.net and click on the latest issue and look at upcoming events, which is linked right at the top there. So as you will have heard from my last podcast, I am recovering from hip surgery. I'm a day away from four weeks from my hip surgery. My surgeon has said nice things about how my recovery is going. A suture is healing well, hip is healing well. I've stopped using a cane around the house and I only use it when I venture outside, which is quite a relief. I can carry stuff, which is amazing. And even better, my surgeon has cleared me to get massage, which frankly, I really need. My chronic pain has been badly exacerbated by the immobilizing effects of recovering from surgery, and it's been a real burden. So now I'm in good shape. Now, I can't remember if I mentioned this or not last week when I did my recording, but I have signed a four-book deal with Tor Books. Now that I say that, I have a dim recollection of my saying this last week. It is the biggest deal I've ever signed. It definitely sets out my life for the next couple of years. And one of the things that it sets out is that I have to write and deliver two sequels to the book I finished last year, which is called Red Team Blues. It's a noir heist novel. And these sequels are actually prequels. I introduce a new character, a hard-fighting forensic accountant hacker named Martin Hench. And I am writing his first adventure now, a book called Picks and Shovels. I'm about 10,000 words into that. It's been going great guns since I last spoke to you. 1,000 words a day. And uh, Marty Hench's adventures are shaping up to be good fun. This one is set in the heroic era of the PC, and it deals with some scam artists, a PC company that's quite unlikely called The Three Wise Men, run by a Mormon bishop, an Orthodox rabbi, and a Catholic priest, all of whom are grotesquely corrupt and running a kind of affinity scam where they combine multi-level marketing and proprietary hardware to build members of their own faith groups out of vast sums of money for consumables and software. And it is a romp that is coming along really well. Okay, so what else is going on? Well, this week I'm going to read to you an essay I wrote for Medium last week called Take It Back. And Take It Back is an essay about copyright reversion. It's a very obscure subject that you may not have heard about, although it's been in the news more. In part because a bunch of the original Marvel artists' estates, like the estates of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, have sued or are suing Disney to recover the rights to their characters, to terminate their copyright transfers and revert their rights. And also because a court just ruled in favor of the author of the original Friday the 13th screenplay and ruled that he could revert his rights and that he could take it back. My interest in reversion is longstanding, but it really picked up when I embarked on a joint project with my friend Rebecca Giblin. She's a very famous Australian copyright expert, and we co-wrote a book together called The Shakedown about how copyright is insufficient to guarantee 
creators' incomes and what other kinds of labor regimes we can use to ensure that creators get a fair shake when they deal with the industrial actors who fund and distribute their work. Rebecca has done some landmark studies on reversion, including one that just came out, the biggest one ever done of U.S. reversion. Some of the statistics that I cite in this essay come from her work, and I recommend checking it out. Now, I would be remiss if I failed to note that one of the things that I did not grapple with in this essay, but which I think we will be grappling with more in the future at Electronic Frontier Foundation, is the effect that copyright termination and reversion has on free and open source software, Creative Commons works, and other works of collective creation that are made using liberal copyright regimes. We want to make sure that copyright reversion benefits creators who are being exploited, But what we don't want to do is create a minefield where one person can revert seven lines of code out of the middle of a giant, widely used project with, you know, 100 million users worldwide and thereby make the entire code base out of compliance and put all of those people in legal jeopardy. That's obviously not what reversion is for. And we're going to have to do something to make sure that whatever kind of aggressive reversion regime we have is maximizing those upsides in terms of creators' bargaining power, but minimizing those downsides. So there's one other thing I'm going to mention to you before I kick off on this week's reading, and that's that on October the 5th, which as I record this is two days away, the paperback in the U.S. and Canada of Attack Surface will launch. That is great news. And my local bookstore, Dark Delicacies, is getting several cases in. I'm going to go in and sign those. So if you want to get a signed copy for Christmas or personalized copy, you can order one from them. Otherwise, you can get it, of course, anywhere books are sold. And to celebrate, I am releasing all three of the Little Brother audiobooks, Little Brother, Homeland, and Attack Surface, in a one-month limited-time bundle for $30. Now, those normally sell for $60, I believe. Let me see if I've got that math right. $70. I beg your pardon. They normally sell for $70. So this is a stellar deal. And while I own the rights to two of those audiobooks, one of them comes from Random House Audio, and they were kind enough to give me permission to do this. So that's actually already up. I haven't announced it. But, you know, you, the podcast listener, are getting a preview. If you go to craphound.com shop, It's the first item there. It's a gigantic download, all three audiobooks, and they're great. I mean, the first one's read by Kirby Haywood. The second one's read by Will Wheaton. The third one is read by Amber Benson. They sound great. The stories, of course, are much beloved, and this is a stellar deal. So this is a great week to get involved in Little Brother. Uh, You can get Attack Surface, the standalone adult sequel to Little Brother and Homeland, in paperback, signed or not, as you choose, and you can get all three on audio for for a mere $30, so that is great news. All right, without further ado, here is Take It Back, my column from September 26th on drodmedium.com. Take It Back, Copyright Reversion, Bargaining Power, and Authors' Rights. Few labor markets are as dysfunctional as the market for creative labor. Writers, musicians, graphic artists, and other creative workers often produce because they feel they have to, driven by a need to express and discover themselves. 
Small wonder that creative workers are willing to produce art for lower wages than they'd accept for other types of work. This leads to a vast oversupply of creative work, giving publishers, labels, studios, and other intermediaries a buyer's market for creative labor. For the most part, arts policy pretends this isn't true. When economists and business people talk about labor markets, they lean heavily on the neoliberal conception of the rational economic actor who produces when it makes sense to do so and then moves on to another form of work when it doesn't. Homo economicus is a nonsense. Behavioral economics has repeatedly demonstrated all the ways in which, quote, economic actors don't behave the way economic models predict they will, but it's especially absurd when applied to creative labor markets. To be fair, policymakers have been abetted by creators who insisted that they were only acting rationally. Think of Samuel Johnson's, No man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. But no amount of pretense could fully obscure the irrational and exploitative nature of the market for creative work, which is why we find odd glimmers of reasonableness in arts policy. Take the first U.S. copyright law, the Framers' Copyright which established a 14-year term of copyright. This was, and still is, the term of commercial viability for the vast majority of works. However, if your work happened to be among the lucky, tiny minority of books that were still commercially active after 14 years, you could get another 14 years of copyright, but only if you personally applied for it. Did you catch the labor policy latent in that copyright law? If a work was commercially viable after 14 years, the creator could extend its copyright for another 14. The publisher couldn't. The vast majority of creators who sit down to dicker over the price of a new work with an investor, a publisher, a label, a studio, or whatever, have virtually no negotiating power. Not only are there plenty of other creators willing to fill the slot in the investor's portfolio, but the new work is almost always a bet with unquantifiable odds. No one, not the greatest A&R scout, nor the most astute acquiring editor, nor the most gilded studio executive, not even the best algorithm fattened with the most data, can reliably pick winners from among the pool of creative works available to them. As creative markets have become increasingly concentrated and winner-take-all, Investor organizations, awash with cash, have laid increasingly larger bets on works, paying larger advances, allocating bigger marketing budgets, shelling out for licenses and top talent to work on, quote, tentpole projects in a bid to dominate the winner-take-all system. Big bets can have big payoffs, but also come at a creative cost. When a company shells out millions for a new project, it does everything it can to reduce its risk through sticking with known quantities— paying for name-brand talent, rebooting previously successful projects, commissioning endless sequels and look-alikes. There is an obvious problem with only funding variations on successful works. Where do you get the successful works to endlessly reboot and remix? This consideration isn't lost on the decision-makers in the culture industry, most of whom are genuinely interested in originality and novelty, notwithstanding the need to cabin their investment risk which is why there's always new stuff being released. Creative debut, experiments with form and genre, all manner of long-shot bets. Here's where labor economics tilts towards the investor and away from the worker. 
When your work is a long shot, when there is a bottomless pool of other workers producing long shots that are no more improbable than your own, then the investor can negotiate incredibly low rates for your work and lock those low rates in for long timescales. If you get very lucky, if you happen to score a big success, you can leverage that with your next project to command better terms, but those early bad bargains are eternal. Once the Beatles were established, they signed lucrative deals, but for their first several studio albums, the Fab Four got one penny in royalties per album, which they split four ways after 15% was taken out to pay for promotional copies. That's the kind of grotesque outcome that the framers' copyright sought to prevent. By limiting copyright renewal to the author, the framers gave creators a chance to renegotiate their deals from a position of strength. To illustrate how this might have worked, I'm going to reproduce a short two-act play from my book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Act 1. A publisher's office in colonial America. The publisher, wearing a green eye shade, presides over a huge cast-iron press, standing behind a countertop surmounted by a bushel of sickly potatoes. The author, dressed in ragged trousers, enters, carrying a large manuscript, which he thrusts upon the publisher. Author. I have written a novel. Publisher takes the manuscript and peruses it. Publisher. Not bad, my fine fellow. If you wouldst assign to me thine copyright, I will remunerate you handsomely with yonder potato. Author. Just one potato? It took me a year. Publisher. If thee doubt my generosity, I invite you to offer this manuscript to the scoundrels down the road. I hear they are paying authors and half-carrots. Author. Do you really need my whole copyright assigned to you? What if I just license it to you? Publisher. Ah, but this is how we protect our investment in the work. Once thou hast assigned unto me thine copyright, I can use it to sue yonder down-the-road scoundrels who would otherwise happily put out a pirated edition. Author. Well. Publisher offers a contract in one hand, a potato in the other. The author signs it. Act 2. The publisher's office, 14 years later, and much enriched. Many presses clank away in the background, attended by busy, efficient laborers. The publisher has grown fat and satisfied in his dotage. The author enters even thinner and more down at heels than before. Author. You sent for me, sir? Publisher. Oh, yes, so nice to see you again. You're looking a... well? Author. I don't suppose you have any more potatoes? Publisher. Indeed, sir, I do, and all I require is that you sign this copyright renewal form so that I can post it straight away to the Library of Congress. Author. Yes, I see my novel in bookstores everywhere. I'd forgotten that the copyright was due to expire. That must be terrible for you when that happens. After all, you've made such a good living from it. Publisher. If you just sign right here. Author. Oh, I'll sign. But before I take pen in hand, let us discuss the matter of back royalties and my fee for renewal. Publisher. Come now, sir. If thou wouldst not sign this paper, why, thy novel would fall into the public domain, and the scoundrels down the road would begin to print up competing editions. Author. I don't see what that has to do with me. 
Publisher. Sir, wouldst thou have thy novel to be published by scoundrels? Author gives the publisher a significant look. Publisher squirms. Curtain. Renewal by author isn't merely a way to manage the public domain. If the author doesn't think that their work's copyright is worth renewing, then why not return it to the public domain so that all may use, reuse, preserve, and build upon it? It's also a way to ensure that breakout creativity works compensate their creators as well as their investors. But it's not the only way. Reversion rights are a long-standing feature of many of the world's copyright systems. In the U.S., a creator who files the correct paperwork can reclaim the rights to their work after 35 years, irrespective of the term of the contract. That is, even if you sign away your rights for the whole term of copyright, you can still claw them back after 35 years has gone by. Now, a vanishingly small number of works are still valuable after 35 years. But that alone doesn't account for the minuscule portion of works that get reverted. As Joshua Uvaraj, Rebecca Giblin, Daniel Russo-Batterham, and Genevieve Grant document in their groundbreaking 2021 study, U.S. Copyright Termination Notices, 1977-2020, Introducing New Data Sets, the complexity and opacity of the reversion process keeps works locked up with investors to the detriment of creators who negotiated their early contracts from a position of terrible weakness. And yet, reversion does happen. Stephen King, George R. R. Martin, Nora Roberts, and David Eddings have all reverted their works. But the reversion gold medal goes to Francine Pascal, author of the Sweet Valley High books, who reverted all 305 of them. Silver goes to Anne Martin, who reverted the entire Babysitter's Club series. Musicians are cautiously exploring reversion as well. Most famously, George Clinton reverted 1,413 of his works, songs he claimed had been stolen from him by an unethical manager. The most exciting reversion news of the decade just dropped. The heirs of Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Don Rico, Don Heck, Larry Lieber, and Gene Colan have filed to revert the rights to the most famous characters they created for Marvel, characters now owned by Disney, which has turned them into a multi-billion dollar ATM for its investors, without cutting in those original creators. Unsurprisingly, Disney is suing to block the reversion, claiming that the Marvel characters are not eligible for reversion because they were works made for hire. The case will be fascinating and closely watched by creators and creative advocates, in part because it's a rematch of an earlier fight. In 2014, Mark Toberoff represented the estates of Superman creators Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, who were paid a flat sum of $130 for the rights to their creation by DC in 1938, and died in poverty, in a bid to revert the rights to Superman. He lost, and Warners, DC's parent company, went scorched earth in retaliation, trying to scare off other would-be reverters by claiming that Toberoff was guilty of tortious interference in their contract with Siegel and Schuster. They also tried unsuccessfully to have Toborov sanctioned by the judge in the case. Toborov's nemesis in the Superman case was Dan Petricelli, who represented Warners. Today, Toborov is representing the Marvel heirs, and Petricelli has been retained by Disney for a rematch. I'm not going to take a guess at the outcome of this case. It will doubtless turn on the technicalities of the so-called Marvel method and the specific nature of the contracts that Marvel creators entered into with the company. 
these are likely to be quite a hodgepodge, as Marvel went through a series of bankruptcies and near-bankruptcies and labored under chaotic management for most of its corporate history. Large media companies have surprisingly bad contracting policies. A Star Trek original series creator of my acquaintance claims that they retained the rights to a major aspect of the series and that Paramount freely reused it without any royalties or permissions, in violation of their contract. My source believes Paramount doesn't even realize it doesn't have the rights to do what it's doing. But beyond the legal technicalities, the outcome of the Disney case is extremely hard to predict. In 2014, Disney settled with the Jack Kirby estate on a similar case that was headed for the Supreme Court. The terms of the settlement were undisclosed, though again, I've heard that the sums involved were staggering, implying that Disney decided that an unfavorable Supreme Court ruling was possible and could be ruinous. If I had to bet on the outcome of these cases, I'd bet on another settlement. Disney doesn't want to set a pro-reversion precedent in the nation's highest court, and beyond that, the company has to be eyeing the resurgence of antitrust enforcement, including a focus on monopolist exploitative labor policies, with trepidation, and at least some of its lawyers will be pushing to have the company put on a show of its benign rule. But more important than the outcome of these cases is the future of reversion itself. As the culture industries become more concentrated and more profitable, the median incomes of culture workers are falling. Reversion has become a powerful tool to help ensure that when a work of art is commercially successful, artists share in the riches. Nonprofits like the Authors Alliance have done important work in producing tools to help automate reversion, but the process is still too complicated, and it takes too long to invoke. A 25-year reversion standard, or hell, a framer's reversion at 14 years, would have no impact on the vast majority of works, but would still have a dramatic effect on the financial straits of the creators whose works bring joy to millions. I declare an interest here. Not only am I an author, but I'm a member of the advisory board for the Authors Alliance. I also collaborated with Rebecca Giblin, co-author of the reversion study linked above, to write a book called The Shakedown that explores the way that the entire creative supply chain is tilted away from creators' interests and explores novel tools for putting more money in creators' pockets, from reversion to prohibiting certain contracting terms, from worker co-ops to trade unions, and beyond. Beacon Press will publish The Shakedown in 2022. All right, then, that's it for this week. I hope you have a good one, and I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctorow Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>